Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build you an entire campaign to run for your group starting tonight. As you know by now, we're running a Deadlands Classic campaign, so if you don't already have the Player's Handbook and Marshall's Guide, I suggest you head over to PEGIC.com and pick yourself up a PDF copy so you can get yourself up to speed and so you can start that game tonight. All right, before we get into this week's episode, I do have to apologize that this show dropped later than it normally would. I don't have a whole lot of legitimate reasons. There is one, though, that I do need to mention. I recorded it on time. I was going to have it out on time, but the audio quality, well, let's just say it didn't meet up with my standard, and I refuse to release a substandard audio quality, so scrapped it re-recorded it later, and here you go. So I'd rather be late than put out an inferior product. I will endeavor to do better on that in the future. Okay, let's get back into what we were going to do today. Okay, so for those of you who have just started listening, every other episode of this show has two very distinct parts. In part one, we recap what we created last week, then build out further with the continuation of our story. Part two is what I call the home game session. I recap what my group did the last time we ran, then I run through the material that they covered during our session the previous Saturday night. Now, frequently we find that what we wrote during our previous campaign builds is worked around or just flat out bypassed as my group finds their own ways to solve the issues we put before them. And I've been asked on more than one occasion why I include my campaign recaps as a part of the show. I mean, after all, I'm basically showing you how my group undid all of the hard work I put in as both a GM and as a creator. So I wanted to take a minute to break this down before we get into this week's build. Now, while it's true that even I can see what my group does is either undoing what I've created or figuring out how to beat my system, it doesn't really bother me the way it did when I was younger. And the reason for that is because over the years, I've changed my mindset about how I see my role as the GM. You older, more experienced GMs probably know where I'm going with this, and some of you younger, newer GMs might have an idea as well, but for those who don't, I don't see myself as an adversary of my group. It's not me versus them. What I am is a storyteller. I've written a story, or at least the outline for one, and it's up to my group to make edits to the story and provide the color and flavor for the finished product. Now, I will admit that it sucks when I've spent time carefully working out scenarios for them to really have to work their way through and somebody figures out how to get around it in about 30 seconds. But hey, that's their job as a group. Figure out the best way to deal with the situation that's been presented to them. It's not me they're trying to beat or overcome. It's the situation I've presented to them. So when I look at it like that, it doesn't really bother me like it used to. Now, look, I'm not going to lie. There are times I find myself just putting my head in my hands and just shaking because they do something that's completely unexpected and it just throws me off. But you know what? Good for them. They should do that from time to time, especially since the game we're playing right now has the potential for death, high potential for death if there's combat. So I present the recaps of my games to show you other possibilities so that you can either change the way the game's been written because what the group has come up with is better than we have, or so that you've got an idea of what your group might do. And then you can anticipate something like that and adjust accordingly to make the encounter more or less challenging, depending on your style. At the end of the day, I want my group to succeed. I want them to increase their abilities. I want them to make money, have cool weapons and stuff, and to be able to work their way through the adventure and see it to its conclusion. And I want that story to seem as real and as possible to them as it can. 
I mean, tabletop role-playing games should be a collaborative effort. If we're all working to tell the story, then everyone in the group has a buy-in, and therefore everybody has a stake in what's going on. Having that personal stake in what's going on also encourages each player to give their all to the game, since not doing that is not only going to affect their character, but the rest of the group. My end goal is always the same. When the session is over, I want my group to feel like they've had fun. If they've had fun, then it was a good night for me. If they haven't, well, then I feel like I've wasted everybody's time, and frankly, that's not good for any of us. And yes, I do understand that many podcasters and YouTube providers out there, Matt Colville is just one among many of them that say it, that say it's equally important for both the group and the GM to have had a good time. Look, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I do have this to say. I am never happy with my performance as the GM. Maybe that's a character flaw on my part, but I've always said, whether it's in gaming or in life itself, that nobody, and I mean nobody, is ever going to be harder on me than I'm going to be on myself. So I've decided over the years that the gauge for me about how my game went on any given night is how much fun my players had. If they've had fun, then I know I did my job. No matter how many mistakes I made or how bad I might have screwed up that one encounter during the session, there's going to be plenty of time for me to beat myself up over it later. Let the group enjoy their night, and then I celebrate with them. So I hope that explains why I've laid this show out the way I have. I guess if I were going to do a TLDR on this, it'd be this. In the creation portion of the show, we're coming up with the story the way we think of it as a given time. In the recap of my home group portion, (laughs) we're showing you how it actually played out. And let's be honest, there is a reason I call myself the bad GM. It's not just a catchy nickname I created for the production company, folks. All right, so we're three and a half pages of script in and over 1,100 words. And gosh, I haven't even started building anything this week. So um, how about I get off the soapbox topic and get down to business? We begin, as we always do, with our recap of what we created last week. We began with the group leaving the farm of Alexis Miranda, who they just met just outside of Dodge City. They were discussing her father, the board member Zebediah Thomas, a.k.a. The Butcher. All of the stuff they discussed was in last week's episode, so refer back to that for the information you need. From there, the group returned to Dodge City and mounted up to head for Albuquerque. While en route, they had two separate encounters with Walking Dead, and we're going with the thought that your group survived them, of course. They made their way into the city, got checked into a hotel, and presumably got cleaned up and got the road grime off of them before they started checking out the various sources they had. We discussed them checking out the Hotel Gatto, where they met Maria Smith-Sanchez. She told them about a man she'd once dated, Jacob Walters, whom she dated for about a year before he mysteriously disappeared about six months ago. She says she saw him about a month ago and noted that his appearance had drastically changed. He appeared to be pale, almost gray when she saw him, and his hair and eyes had also gotten grayer, and he was dirtier. Finally, she noted that he wouldn't let her get anywhere near him while she was talking to him. This all seemed to matter because she also noted his employer is the Albuquerque Daily News, which is owned by Zebediah Thomas. The group also checked out the Distilleria Rolling Sun and spoke with Juan Marquez. Mr. Marquez discussed the Shannon gang, who the group was also tasked with chasing down. He noted that he pays that gang $100 a week in protection money, and he notes that they'll be coming in the morning to get their weekly cash. 
He also had nothing but nice things to say about the Albuquerque Daily News. So on that end, he had nothing new to tell them. From there, the group headed to the Albuquerque Daily News and noted that the second floor, which was the newsroom, had six men on it who fit the basic description of what Jacob Walters looked like upon his return from being missing, but the group couldn't get anybody to talk about them, or to talk about anyone or anything else for that matter. So finally, the group decided to check out Zebediah Thomas's house since his daughter had so kindly given them the address. Remembering that she'd also told them the back door was typically left unlocked, they made their way in, only to find the reason why it's unlocked. There were six walking dead in there. They dispatched the walking dead, managed to smooth things over with the local law, and got the heck out of there post-haste. And that is where we left off last week. We pick up this week with the group heading away from the Thomas house and trying to sort out their next move. It's probably well after dark by this point, as they've already been to four places, plus a stop for food at least once. If they want to head back to the Albuquerque Daily News to see if they could follow Zebediah Thomas home, let them do that. There are two things to note here. Unless they're really good at being cool and casual, they will draw the attention of beat cops wandering through, and they will probably be asked to move along. Now, that would be because while there are a couple of bar, restaurant-type places across from the newspaper office, the folks that work in them know pretty much everybody who comes in, since it's mostly newspaper employees. That means that folks they don't know who are taking a particular interest in the office are going to draw their attention, which means they'll eventually draw the attention of the police. The second point is this. The group can scope out the office all night long if they want to. They will never see Thomas come out of it. And that's because he doesn't leave. Well, I mean, actually, he was never in there, but they don't know that. So let's keep that little note between ourselves, shall we? The group does have a solid lean on the Shannon gang. And since they'll need to be on site at the distilleria early tomorrow, it's probably best that they head off to get some dinner, maybe a couple drinks, do a little gambling, if that's their thing. And we'll pick up in the morning. The group will need a plan of action, because while Marquez welcomed them to be on site to see what was going on, logic should dictate that they really need to not be seen by the pickup men. In other words, they need to blend into the surroundings and then tail the men back to their drop-off. All of this will be complicated by the fact that the bar isn't open for customers when they get there, so it's not like they can just take seats at a table or at the bar and just observe what's going on. They will literally have to find places to stand where they won't stand out, then try to tail the pickup men from there. Fortunately for them, there are enough businesses that are open at this hour, and for the record, let's say it's 8 a.m., for them to be able to at least act like they're supposed to be where they are. For the ease of blending, let's say there's a farmer's market just north of the bar, and since it's an open-air market, there's going to be a lot of people there, including buyers for many of the restaurants in town. So this should give just enough cover for most of the group if that's a plan they want to use. I can say that my group rarely puts all their eggs in one basket, as you'll see when we do the recap in a little bit. So they will probably put someone on the south side of the bar to see if their men come in from that direction, another at the building directly across from the main entrance to the bar, plus a man or two in that farmer's market. And since they've got a spy class, I can see them putting somebody on the rooftop of one of the buildings, particularly to be overwatch if things get hairy, but also to be able to track from rooftop to rooftop. However, your group might have its own ideas, so as long as they don't seem too far-fetched, go ahead and let them run with it. Should any of your group members want to try to disguise themselves, have them make disguise rolls with a target number of four if it's just so that they don't look like themselves. If they're looking for something a bit more complicated, increase that target to eight. 
If by chance they're trying to disguise themselves to look like generic gang member 24, the target number is going to be a 12. And if they fail, the second one of these two pickup men sees them, it doesn't end well. I'm thinking conflict probably. Just keep track of successes and raises, because for every raise a character gets, they're going to get a bonus to their sneak checks later on. Once they're in place, they see the tall white guy and the short, fat white guy come from around the south of the building, head for the main entrance, and head in. A few moments later, they exit and head north up the street. At this point, it's time for anyone trailing them to make their sneak checks. The target number is eight, because while there are some people out this morning, the group is specifically trying to tail two people on a particular route through town. And this is where those raises on the disguise checks come into play. Now, for those of you who might have forgotten, here's what raises are. If the target number is a four, four would be a success, eight would be a raise, 12 would be two raises, and so on, and so on. In other words, each multiple of the target number reached is considered a raise. So, for each raise on the disguise check, they can lower the sneak check target by one. Or you can just add one to the roll and not worry about making reductions. However you want to do it. If there's a guy on the roof, they need a sneak check of 12 without question, because there just aren't that many people hanging out on rooftops in this city. And it's not just about fooling the gang members. It's also about fooling the citizenry, because if one of them see your character, (laughs) gigs up, they'll be calling for the cops, and that'll pretty much be that for that particular character for this scenario. It won't mess things up for the group as a whole, though, provided they all made their roles. It just means they're going to need to go bail their group member out of jail when they're done. Now look, unless that group member is armed, they can be bailed out for 10 bucks, though the charges are going to be kind of fuzzy. Come up with some ridiculous charge for them, and that's what they're going to get hauled in for. Now, if that guy's carrying, it's going to be a $100 fine, and that character's guns will be held by the police until they leave town. Again, not the end of the world, but a bit of an inconvenience. Okay, since I don't have a map drawn up for this, and I'm going to be using Theater of the Mind anyway... I'm not going to get into a lot of specifics about the buildings or whatnot. The chase is going to go on for 16 blocks, but it's going to twist and turn as they go along, so it's not going to be 16 blocks in one direction. First turn will be after four blocks, and it will be away from the side that someone on a rooftop would be on. If by chance you got people on rooftops on both sides, pick a direction, and one of the characters will have to drop down and start making sneak checks to keep up. I should also note that for every four blocks of the chase, the target number for the sneak goes up by one. After the first turn, they go another four blocks before turning back to the north. Four blocks later, they turn east. And four blocks after that, they turn south and stop in front of a rather inconspicuous-looking house on the corner. They give a very specific combination of knocks on the door, wait a moment or two, and then they gain access to the building. Now, you can decide what the pattern of knocks are that the bagmen use. Make it something whimsical, or something as basic as the old shave and a haircut bit. YouTube it if you're not sure what it is. Whatever you decide to do, it's up to you. Before your group goes to make their next move, let's lay out what's around this building. First off, every building on the block is two stories, and they're all houses. Think of uh, the row house style in New York City. It's also in some sections of St. Louis. That's where I got the idea. I've seen it a thousand times because I'm from the St. Louis area, and I actually still live in the St. Louis area. Most American cities, at least major American cities, have a variation on this theme. For our foreign listeners, and no, I haven't forgotten about you, just think of it as a whole bunch of two-story, somewhat narrow houses squished together on a city block so you can fit in as many houses as possible. And that's on both sides of the streets, by the way. And all of these houses look like they've seen better days. So, what does your group do? 
Do they use the same knock pattern and force their way in when the door opens? Do they hang back for a minute to see if anyone comes out, then tail them? Or do they just decide to kick the door in and hit the gang guns a-blazing? I'm going to address the second idea first. They could stand out there for hours, and all they're going to do is attract the notice of the people who live in this neighborhood. You can decide what form that takes, but it's ultimately not going to be good for them in the long run. Either of the other two methods will work, but the first one would be the more subtle one. If they knock, the door is opened, and they can force their way in from there, and we'll continue in a moment with that. They can also kick the door in, but that's going to draw some attention from those on the street and will most likely also draw the attention of the police at some point. Either way, they find themselves in a small living room or parlor with three very surprised men staring at them. Two of them look familiar, which they should. They just tailed them for 16 blocks. They can assume correctly that the third man is the one who opened the door for them. Now, if they kicked in the door... Each man has pulled his gun and is ready to fight. So that's going to mean combat and use the cowpoke template from the player's handbook for this. However, if they did the knock, they'll catch all three men off guard and they should be able to talk their way through it. Let them use whatever skills they want and you use the appropriate skills to sort through whatever you like to sort through. Call it BS, call it whatever. Again, use the cowpoke template. I want these to be opposed roles. So there's no target number. So long as the individuals of the group beat the individuals in the room on their roles, they will succeed. And this is one of those things that's an all or nothing. If they fail to overcome even one of the three men, there's going to be gunplay. For the record, that is not going to be good because there are more men in here that will ultimately get involved. But let's not play gloom and doom. Let's say the group succeeds and nobody's drawing pistols in here. The three men are willing to have a conversation, and since they've been out bluffed or overawed or whatever, they're going to be willing to share a few things. Buster Shannon is the leader of this gang, but he's not here right now. This is their meeting place, and there are at least a half a dozen more gang members upstairs right now, probably sleeping or, <laughs> well, you know. They don't know where Buster lives because they don't know where anybody else in the gang lives. Those are Buster's rules. They meet here to head off and do what they need to do on a daily basis. If one of the group members wants to push for more information, they can try an overawe or persuasion role, target number 10. If they succeed, one of the men will tell them that they know Buster likes to gamble at the wagon wheel, and he can be found there most nights around 10 p.m. That's it. That's all these three guys have got, and the group can tell they are not dealing with the sharpest knives in the drawer. Or to quote an old friend of mine, not the sharpest cookie in the crayon box. When it's all said and done, they can choose to deal with these guys however they want. Again, though, gunfire is going to probably draw down the other six men in the building. <laughs> that was not a lie. There are six guys up there, as well as probably bring the cops along. And there's a pretty good chance that this time they're not going to be able to talk their way out of it. Now, these days, my group's all about not shooting unless fired upon. So Scott will probably use his skills to levy some sort of veiled threat to the men while the others bid them a fond adieu. For these guys, it's going to be about catching the leader at the casino and getting information out of him. At this point, give each member of your group two white chips, and we're going to wrap the build portion of the show right here. I know, I know. We didn't build quite as much this week as I'd promised, and that's because of the time I spent up on my soapbox earlier. Sorry about that. Next week will be a build-only episode, and I promise we'll not only get to the casino and deal with that, but we'll also get some very interesting information about Zebediah Thomas that will cause the group to start chipping away at him. I promise. 
So before we get into what my group did in this last session, we need to do a recap from their previous session. As their last session began, the group was still in Denver, having agreed to take the job in Little Rock to eliminate the Muffin Man. God, I'm so tired of that name. I've got to do better moving forward. I'm sorry. Anyway, once they were on the train, they took the time to familiarize themselves with the information in the folder Mr. Norwood gave them. Once in Little Rock, they found themselves accommodations, then proceeded to hit up all of their various contacts in town. One little problem for them was that they hadn't figured out that the name Marcus in their folder was a code word they needed, so they didn't get quite as much information as they needed initially. However, using their powers of persuasion, along with a healthy dose of their own money, they were able to get the bulk of the available dirt on Mr. Monroe and his plantation. Now, Tyler had both an interesting session in the barber shop, where he got a ton of information the group needed, as well as a meeting with the lawyer, which got them most of the rest. He and Gabe returned to the lawyer the following day, after Aniston had acquired mail for Mr. Shaughnessy, who had been presumed dead, and they presented it to the lawyer as proof that Shaughnessy was, in all likelihood, deceased. That's when they got the rest of the info that they needed. After an incident with a couple of men who'd been tailing them, they decided that if they were going to compete with what they'd just heard about, they were going to need more firepower, so they had requested from a shopkeeper to see a Smith & Robards catalog. And that was where we ended that session. Last Saturday's session began with the group scouring the catalog to figure out what they were looking to buy. As a quick aside, I could have had the group do this on their own during the two weeks between sessions, but since I'm the only one with a copy of the PDF of that particular book, it fell on me to let them do it during the session. Took them about a half an hour in real time, but they decided on air rifles and various armor pieces, since they were planning on taking a lot of fire when they eventually decided to ride into the plantation. Gabe also had the idea to equip all of those air rifles with scopes so as to be able to help with their shots. I made a few rolls and decided it would take six days for them to get their items shipped from Smith & Robards. Since they weren't ordering anything overly complicated, that's going to mean the company probably had enough of the items on hand to be able to pack them up and ship them out almost immediately after they got the order. Since they had six days to burn, I thought they might go do some recon on the plantation, but they decided to wait for their gear. They instead considered going back to a few of their connections to get some more information, but they decided they'd probably gotten as much out of them as they were going to get. They also floated the idea of confronting Monroe's accountant about the irregularities in the books. Now, as GM, I could have let that go and let the consequences fall where they may. However, I had an advantage this session in that Tyler was out because he he was sick, wasn't feeling good. So I had decided, and I'd actually announced this to the group before the session started, that I would play Tyler's character as needed. In this case, I decided it was needed. I made a couple of rolls and was able to pass along a thought that I wanted them to consider. Tyler's character pointed out to the group that the accountant doesn't know the woman who gave them the information about the books even knows about them. So to go to him and act like they know something could potentially put her in danger. Using his knowledge rolls, which were among the rolls I made, that character was able to counter a couple of points from the group by pointing out that some of the information they'd gotten from people in town indicated that folks who get too close to or too suspicious about the plantation tend to come up missing, or worse, and they don't want that nice lady to wind up having that same fate. Since I didn't want it to seem like I was just shoving it down their throats, I asked the group to make smarts checks with a target number of five. Three of the four members made their checks, and they came to that exact same conclusion, so the entire group was ultimately on board with the decision to not go see the accountant. And 
The one who missed the check didn't seem overly bothered by the change in plan, so it was all good. At that point, we fast-forwarded to day six when they were able to pick up their order and get themselves geared up. Since it was midday by the time they'd done that, they decided to head out to the plantation and get a little recon work in. In what I thought was a very smart move, they decided to stick to the tree line, which, as you'll remember, is about 300 yards away from the plantation proper. But with a spyglass and scopes on all the rifles, they were able to get a good enough look to be able to make their search checks to get all of the background information provided about the plantation. Basically, what they did ultimately was ride a full circle around the plantation. They would stop every now and again, check out what they could, and then move on and do the exact same thing. They spent the bulk of the afternoon doing this and then backed further into the woods when they were done with that so they could discuss a plan of action. Now, I made it a point to ask them if they intended to try to infiltrate the plantation during the day, and they were legitimately considering it. One idea they had was to use dynamite to blow up the house. However, they quickly came to the conclusion that if they blew up the house, they'd also lose access to any paperwork or clues that might be in there, so they shelved that idea. Using Tyler's character's military background, I suggested to the group that if they were going to blow something up, the house that they'd seen the men in red and black uniforms going into and out of would probably be the better choice, since it would decrease the number of men with Gatling rifles potentially coming after them. Aniston suggested strapping dynamite to a hog with a long fuse. The rest of the group then had to remind him that hogs don't typically run in a straight line, and in fact have been known to run back from whence they came, which is the opposite outcome from what they were looking for. So after coming to an impasse on how to handle things, and I gave them quite a bit of time to talk it through, I again used Tyler's character to suggest they come back at night and do another recon in the hopes that maybe things would be a bit more to their advantage. The group retreated to Little Rock for dinner, then headed out well after 9 p.m. to check out the plantation. They made a series of target number nine search checks, again from the trees, though not quite as deep. And I added a few things to the plantation that we didn't put in during the creation process, because not only did the group ask me about them, but it actually made a whole lot of sense to add them. First, I put three barns in the southeast corner of the plantation. The reason for that is that they'd need some place to keep all the animals, especially in bad weather, and if I put them in a reverse L position, they could act as two sides of fencing, making it easier to build the rest of the fencing or pens to keep the animals in. And it was argued that if they had cows, they had to have a bull somewhere, right? So I had one penned separately inside one of the barns. Another add to the plantation were lanterns on posts about 15 feet or so from the house, spaced out about 10 feet apart around the perimeter of the house. Again, this made sense, since at night, anyone guarding the house would want to be able to see someone coming, but they wouldn't want that light source too far out. So, after making their checks, realizing how much time they had to get across 300 yards of clearing to the barns, and making sure everybody understood the plan... They decided to move. I had everyone make three sneak rolls with a target of five. Scott had a really good round of rolls and rolled a 20, so I decided he was able to sneak so well, he got to the barn almost immediately. I mean, I kind of had to reward his roll, right? Oh, and before I forget, they decided to head in from the south, which means they were making a straight beeline for the barns. The other three made their rolls and were able to get to the barns within seconds as well. I didn't roll for Tyler because I made the executive decision that so long as everyone else made their rolls, he did too. Oh, and I have to note, they left the horses tied off in the tree line. That comes back into play later. The basic plan was this. Since Aniston has a phobia about barnyard animals, there was no way he was going to be able to get too close to the house. So he took a rifle and was on overwatch on the barn on the southern border of the property. 
It was agreed that Tyler, since he doesn't have any skill in rifles, would stay with Aniston with his shotgun to protect him should things get hairy. Gabe, Scott, and Max, they basically snuck their way through the barns to get to the eastern side of the property, then jumped on up through the opening into the hayloft, where they realized they were about 20 yards away from the main house. Now, normally, to take a shot at the rear window of the house, that would have been 25 yards, which would have put them outside of the range of a rifle. But thanks to the scopes that they brought, their range was increased by 10 yards, so they could hit either the front or the eastern rear window of the house, if they decided to make them. Foreshadowing. Before the group split up, Tyler was instructed that upon a signal from Scott, he was to let the bull out of its main pen and agitate it to the point that it would run loose, with the hope being that some of the men on guard would chase after it. Once the other three got into position, they all noticed that from the northeastern window of the house, they could see Monroe looking out. Again, 25 yards away. I made a couple of rolls and determined that since it was cool but not cold, the windows were open, so there, there would be no glass between Monroe and the group. I also pointed out to them that they'd occasionally see a man in a red and black uniform come up to Monroe, speak, and then move along. So, Scott saw the opportunity and signaled Tyler. I rolled a guts check for the bull to see whether it would attack Tyler or run off for something else. With a target number of six and rolling 46 for the bull, I rolled four ones. Needless to say, the bull went crashing through the barnyard fence and headed straight for the house. This also had the unintended effect of letting the rest of the animals in the barnyard out, which turned out to be a very good thing. Before I let the rest of the boys act, I made another roll. It was a smarts roll and I rolled a one, which meant that both Monroe and the guard with him decided to lean their heads out of the window to see what all of this commotion was all about. Scott and Gabe decided to call headshots on Monroe, while Max called a headshot on the guard. All three fired simultaneously. Now, a called headshot adds six to the target number of the shot, so this wound up being a target number of 20. It took burning a few fate chips, but all three managed to hit their targets. Scott and Gabe did six levels worth of damage to Monroe, which, the way I see it, means they blew his head off. I mean, if five levels of wounds is enough to make an appendage useless and probably lost, six levels to the noggin's gotta mean death, right? Right. Max did a couple of levels of wounds, and while he definitely hurt the guard in a bad way, he didn't kill him, and that turned out to not be a good thing as the guard yelled out that somebody had shot and killed the boss, which brought even more guards and workers out. However, <laughs> they exited and wound themselves right in the middle of a complete goat rope. Let me set the scene for you. You've got a bull running wild around the plantation, with workers and guards coming from everywhere to try to chase it down. You've also got various cows, sheep, lambs, and other animals running wild, and that's got even more guard types and workers trying to catch them. What it meant was that while the scene looked like something out of an old Keystone Cops routine, you can YouTube that if you don't know what I'm talking about. It also meant there were a whole lot of men out there that could potentially know what's going on. And the group was divided, so they couldn't coordinate a plan. Scott, Gabe, and Max were working on their own plan, which was for Max to take a few Molotov cocktails and light the house up, with the idea being that anyone still alive inside would run out and they'd be able to hop through a ground floor window and get inside. At the same time, Aniston and I got to talking with me playing Tyler's character and started working up some sort of a plan for a diversion. So I pulled Aniston aside from the rest of the group. Knowing that he never goes anywhere without dynamite on him, I suggested he use some of it to draw men to another part of the fields. He readily agreed, of course, because he loves the thought of blowing something up. And when we returned to the rest of the group, he announced he was lighting a couple of sticks of dynamite and throwing them towards the southwestern part of the fields. 
I had him make a nominal attack roll since really I just wanted to make sure he didn't roll once. I wanted him to get it far enough away from the barn so it wouldn't blow the barn up. He made the roll by plenty, and then I rolled the damage for the dynamite. Needless to say, it had the intended effect as it blew a nice-sized hole in the field. I then rolled a general search check for all the bad guys in the field, and their attention was turned to the big boom, so they headed towards it, making a path for Max to head off with his burning bottles. He used one on the front of the house and another on the eastern wall. Meanwhile, Scott decided that in order to do a little extra damage, he'd toss some dynamite into one of the windows of the house. Now, from 20 yards out, he didn't quite have the arm, but he got it close enough to do some structural damage to the southeastern corner of the house, and I ruled in the midst of all of that, the curtains around the window got set on fire. I do need to point out that since all of these things were happening simultaneously, I decided on my own what actions happened in what order. I could have used initiative to do it more orderly if I'd wanted to, and quite frankly, if you find yourself in this same spot, please feel free to do so. Scott, Gabe, and Max waited for the last guard on the house to run off for a water bucket, then they dropped down, made easy sneak checks, and entered the house. They found the dead body of Mr. Monroe, as well as all the paperwork we detailed in the creation for this part of the adventure. They also found the closet with the ladder as they followed a blood trail from the window to it. They also found the source of that uh, blood trail, which was one dead guard at the bottom of the hole. Look, I missed a couple of rolls for that guard as he tried to escape, and he fell from about 15 feet, bounced off the walls, hit wrong, and broke his neck. Let's just say it was not my best night for rolling. So, the three inside the house realized the building was now surrounded by men with water buckets and guns, and it was on fire, so they ultimately decided to take the ladder down and figure out where it led so they could get out. They found the tunnel, made their way through it, and came out exactly where we said they would. However, (laughs) Aniston and Tyler were still on a barn roof on the plantation. So look at it from their perspective. You see three of your friends head into a burning house. That house is now surrounded by men with buckets and guns, and you don't see your friends come out. So they did what any reasonable person would do. They got down off the barn, retreated back to where the horses had been left, mounted up, and headed back towards town. Aniston made it clear that they would avoid the road back into town and would kind of wind their way back so that they could lose anybody who might have seen him and try to tail him. Now that left the other three in a bind as they decided to circle around from the east to go to where the horses were. When they got there, of course, Tyler and Aniston had taken them with them. That's what the group assumed, and they used the old heel-toe express to get their way back to Little Rock. Since it took Aniston and Tyler a little bit longer to get back than we'd originally budgeted for, I had a couple of men from the plantation get there on horseback shortly after they did, and those men were announcing that they would be looking for whomever it was that set the plantation on fire. Tyler's character noted, through me of course, that that meant they needed to pack and get the heck out of town. So, by the time the other three got back, Tyler and Aniston were packed. Now, there was some debate about this. Scott argued that the men might actually have formed a perimeter around the town, and they're going to check everybody that's going out. Ultimately, through the discussion, everybody agreed that getting out would be better than staying in town, trying to sleep, and maybe get ambushed. So, Gabe and Scott hitched their horses to the wagon, made sure the dynamite was safely hidden away, and took the road out of town. With a few persuade rolls and a couple of bottles of booze, they were able to easily talk their way out of town, while the other three picked spots with nobody watching and ran their horses out. They met at a prearranged point a few days away from Little Rock, then rode to Dodge City, where they caught a train for Denver. Once there, they cleaned up and got word to Mr. Norwood, who showed up and paid them the other three grand day at coming. He also presented them with the contract for Ezekiel Thomas, with the usual folder and $3,000 up front. 
The group was smart. They read the folder before they left town, so they were able to get an extra $5,000 up front to deal with that gang. They caught a train back to Dodge City because they wanted to meet with Alexis Miranda. The check-in at the newspaper, as well as their meeting with Alexis at the bar, went pretty much the same way as we wrote them up, so I'm really not going to expand on them here, other than to say Scott was the one that Alexis chose to meet with, which, of course, drew chuckles and comments from the rest of the players about his character's thing for younger ladies. They met with Alexis outside of town on the farm the next day, and she presented all of the information she had to give. I did make one change, though. She said she wanted her father's death to be quick, where I'd originally said in the campaign build she wanted it to be slow and painful. Gotta be honest, I don't know why I changed it, but I did, so I figured I better mention it here. The group finished their meeting with her, then mounted up to leave the farm, and that's where we wrapped the session. Okay, so as I mentioned at the beginning of this show, next week will be a build session only, so we'll get the gang situation resolved, or at least as resolved as it's going to get, and we'll see how far along we get into the Ezekiel Thomas situation. As we wrap up this week, I wanted to take a minute to note that with all the changes we've been making with the creation of Bad GM Productions, we made an ad that I haven't noted to this point. Gabe has a Twitch channel he's been running for a while, For the Loot, which is where he live streams his computer and video game playing. When we set up the company, we brought For the Loot on board as well, but we haven't officially changed over to the new Twitch channel, which is Bad GM, by the way. So I encourage you to check out Gabe's Twitch channel at For the Loot and see what he's got going on over there. Don't worry, if you didn't understand everything I just said, we have a link to the channel on the website, badgmproductions.net. I'd also ask that you check out our other podcast, Role-Playing History, where we break down the history of tabletop role-playing games, systems, creators, and whatever else comes to our minds. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or at our website, badgmproductions.net. All Deadlands classic materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted property of Pinnacle Entertainment Group and are used on our show for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in buying these or any of their other products, check out their website at peginc.com. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs for your projects. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube Bad GM Productions. Our email is badgmproductions at gmail.com and online. You can check out our website at badgmproductions.net. Okay, so next week we deal with the Shannon gang and try to figure out just what in the heck is going on with Ezekiel Thomas. That's going to be next week, though, partner. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the gaming table.